Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to church. My name's Philip, and I'm so glad you're here today. And I hear that there's about 30 or 40 people out in the lobby in the overflow, so we're, we're welcoming them as well. And uh, we're, glad that, we're glad you're here, and uh, sorry you're out there. But, <laughs> but it, it's, um, it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord, and I'm thankful for you. So here at the church, we walk through books of the Bible, we walk through passages, and, and, uh, and we walk through themes. And so we just started last week this theme um, in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the main character. He didn't write the book. He's a kind of, there's an anonymous writer, but we know that um, it's in, in keeping with some of the Old Testament uh, books. And Nehemiah tells the story of rebuilding the city walls and gates of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king who, who ransacked Jerusalem in 586, and the, the walls literally lay in ruin for 150 years. And so there was this Jew by the name of Nehemiah, and he was living in Persia, and he was working for Artaxerxes as his cupbearer. And as his cupbearer, he would test his, his food and drink to see if it would kill the king before the king did it. So he was very trusted. And he had a burden for his homeland. Because he looked at home and he said, well, the, the land, is, um, the, the land is, is able to be taken over. And it, it just was an embarrassment for the people in those days. And so Nehemiah says, I should do something. Somebody should do something. If you've ever felt like that, like, hey, why isn't somebody doing something? Why, where, where is the people that are doing something? Then you understand Nehemiah and, um, and how he felt. And so you will you understand that he is, um, he is looking at his homeland and he's deciding, okay, is God calling me this? So he asked Artaxerxes, his boss, imagine asking this of your boss. I want to travel a thousand miles across this unforgiving desert and go repair homeland. And so his boss, being that he's a uh, trusted employee gives him and grants him the ability to go do that, so he takes off. And last week, we talked about the fact that, uh, that there was a shape of Jerusalem, which you'll see here. The temple is in the northern uh, part of the city, and each opening is a gate. And there are 10 gates mentioned in chapter 3. And the ancient gates in, there, in those times were much, much more than just an entrance and an exit. There was uh, defense and business, and, and elders did, did, uh, had court there, and criminals were executed there, and wars were, um, strategies were planned there. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. The gates were a real big deal in ancient times when, uh, when this was written. And so because the gates were a place of public gathering, the condition of the gates affected public life. And so each one had a name and an order. And, um, and you say, well, what does that matter today? Like, okay, so they, they built this, this wall and you got this gate, these gates, and what does it matter? Well, here we are as a church. We're growing, we're building, we're moving toward the future. Many of you are new that have come here. Lots of our people who, um, who are called this church home haven't been able to come back yet. And so so not only are there new people, but when everybody comes back, it's going to feel different. Like, who are you? I've been coming here for a year. Who are you? I've been here for 30 years. You know, I've been at home since the pandemic. I mean, it's just, you know, so as we, as we move forward, there's, this, there's um, points of importance and emphasis that we want to give and be on the same page about. And each gate that was named and repaired has a modern-day pal- parallel for us, which is important both as individuals but also corporately as the church, as we build and refocus and move toward the future, it's important to focus on what God finds important, not just what we think. So last week we talked about the sheep gate. We talked about the fact that um, that all the lambs that were brought to slaughter for the temple uh, were, were, um, were brought through the sheep gate. And we talked about the fish gate, that all the fish brought to the market were brought to this fish gate. And the two parallels were this, one that, that we are, um, that Jesus is, is the lamb of, of, um, of the world, that he is in reminding us that he is the only way to be saved. And the fish gate reminds us that not only does he call us to make a life, but include reaching others for Christ as a main point of that Christian 
life. Two more gates today. I'm going to hit one for a while and then kind of touch the other one at the end, and then we will have baptisms and celebrate and hoop and holler, and the Super Bowl won't have anything on us, okay? Uh, but here's the, the third gate is the old gate. Shahana translates old. This is what it says in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 6. The old gate, just Shahana gate, was repaired. They laid its beams, put its doors, bolts, bars in place. Verse 7, next to them, repairs are made by the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, places under the authority of the governor. And so, verse 8, one of the goldsmiths, Uzal, repaired the next section. Hanai, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the border wall. Okay, here's the truth. Sometimes old, old things no longer have importance and need to be replaced or discarded. And not people, not old people, but things. Think about this. You, you replace a, um, an appliance. Why? Because it starts to not work well. It starts to, it starts to not, not function right. Uh, we, had a, we, had a, uh, we had a refrigerator one time that would freeze on the back, pull down at the bottom, pour out into the floor while you were at work. You know, I YouTubed how to fix it, and it was take a paper clip and hang it on the coil and stick that into the drain hole, and it would be fine, except the fact that it might burn your house down. You know, so it's like that, that, that appliance was great, but it was time to get a new one, right? How many people live with somebody who if one appliance goes out and it doesn't match the color of the other ones, they want all new appliances? Anyway, huh? <laughs> yep, I see. How about a car sitting in the driveway? It's nickel and dime you to death, and you, you know, maybe it's time to save up for, an, for a new car because that one just isn't, isn't doing it. Or, the, or you open the refrigerator, and you remember that spaghetti you were for sure you were going to eat? It's just sitting there for like three weeks later. It's time to, time to move that out. I had a friend in college who, uh, one of my roommates in college, you know that one? That one? He, uh, he, would, he would take a jug and fill it up with water and freeze it with his name on it and dare anybody to touch it. But when we got to the end of the year, it was still sitting in the freezer. Like, you got it out of the tap, man. That was free. Like, anyway, so, so here I am, and, and some things just need to be repaired, right? But let, let me ask you about this. So sometimes old can also mean durable, reliable, valuable, or have survived a long time, right? I mean, I mean it, can, it can be because it survived so long, now it's valuable. Got any coins that are more valuable than they, when they were minted? Right? Like, they, like they're worth more now. Like you could get something out of them. Or uh, antique furniture. You got it sitting around. If you could just get it a little bit fixed up or get a little bit cleaned up, suddenly this furniture that, you know, had gone out of style is suddenly in style again. I mean, it's something to talk about. I come home the other day from work. It's been a long day. I get home. I just want to sit down. I want to eat. And I want to be able to um, just, just relax for a minute. And one of my kids comes up, my, my oldest, and he says, can I talk to you about my Pokemon card? I don't know how you feel about that, but I checked out because I'm tired and I'm hungry, bordering hangry, and I don't want to talk about Pokemon. He said, specifically about my Charizard card. Great. Now, I'm really disinterested, you know, whatever. He says, uh, one of my little buddies said that it's worth some money. Sure. We pay like $20 for a whole pack and it's in the middle of the pack. How much does he say it is? He says it's worth $10,000. Well, I'm a little, I'm, my ears have perked up at this point. Come to find out it was not worth $10,000, but it could be possibly worth about $1,000. And so I'm looking for somebody to validate that. And if you want, if you got $1,000 and you want the car today, it's yours, okay? So, <laughs> so we'll see. But the old gate, 
uh, was one of honor, right? So, so it was believed to be the oldest gate. It was historical. And, and so it was practically speaking where the older or elder men of the, of the city came and sat. So the elders would sit at the old gate. They'd be older, wiser. They would, they'd be hand-selected. They would dispense wisdom and, and help with issues and, and issue judgments. And the old gate was the old way of truth, right? Older men, wiser men, old sage, sage advice. And those younger or those seeking wisdom would come to them and ask their advice and think on what they had given them in terms of next step. Now, hear this. You may not know this. Old people with knowledge don't necessarily make good advice. Usually, older people who have wisdom give advice worth considering, Right? You say, why? Because they've been there, they've done that, they see it coming a mile away, and they know how much it hurts. Imagine this game. I'm sitting with uh, the staff at lunch the other day, and we play this game. If we were sitting on a desert island, basically survivor for real, and we had to stay there for a year, who are three people within the church that you would pick to be on that island with you? It's kind of fun, isn't it? So, so we picked, and we talked about it, and I picked two veterans who, like, were tough and who could uh, survive on the land, and I picked one really, really, really slow person. So if I ever get chased by something, they'll get them first. So I'm dead serious. That's my strategy. So, so I just want to stay in the middle, you know? So, so, but we thought through the skills and who would be easy to live with, who could get food, shelter, who would, who would uh, be good with conflict and resolution and not complain, eat all the food, all that kind of stuff. Um, it was interesting that none of the staff members at the table picked each other to be on the island together. I thought that was, and you should never pick me. I would be the worst person to ever be on an island with. But interestingly enough, is Josh Kane in here? Josh was in the first service. Josh is right there. Everybody in the church, everybody at the staff table picked Josh. How cool is that? Like, Man, every, every, you know, yeah, I think I would like Josh. I think that would be, and so I was thinking about it. Uh, when it comes to wisdom, this would be the kind of person that you would go to the gate and say, I'm not asking you to tell me what to do. I'm asking you to dispense wisdom in my life. So old men would sit at this gate, or young men with old wisdom would sit at this old gate, right? There's something about old truth that we ought not to just dispel of so quickly. You know what worries me? Progressive Christians. We want to debunk everything. We want to repurpose. We want to reimagine the new. And so when I, every day when I turn on either a social media or YouTube or, or some kind of a podcast or, or blog I'm following, there's another spiritual leader who has suddenly come out with all these new ideas, a new identity. They've been awakened by the culture. And I'm saying, stop and ask yourself, is it true or is it just convenient? Is it true or is it just less painful for what you're going to experience if you stand against culture in these days. If we actually look to the Jesus of the Bible, what will that cost us? To put ourselves last instead of first. To put him as king and lord of our life, not ourselves on the throne. What would it look like to endure that old truth and go to people of wisdom and say, how do I live out the ways of the kingdom?" I want to tell you this, truth is a couple of things. Truth endures. Jeremiah verse 6, um, 6 verse 16, the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient past. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures 
forever. Truth is, is also unchanging. Psalms chapter 119 says, the, the word, Lord, is eternal, and it stands firm in the heavens. And I'll tell you that truth is, is liberating. John chapter 8, the Bible says, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are my disciple. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And truth is clearly defined by God, Isaiah 45. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to the descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Truth does not go out of style. It does not come and go with a certain people. It is true all the time. We might misinterpret it, misunderstand it. We can disobey it, but God is not confusing. He, he decides right. He decides wrong. Whether it hurts our feelings or meets our preferences, he decides right. He decides wrong. And the church is going to have to recognize that truth is being assaulted in our day just like it was in Nehemiah's day. Look at all the nations that have come and gone and that truth has been, has been pushed forward and then gently let go of. It's a disaster for them. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 2 says this. When there is moral rot within a nation, its governments topple easy, but wise and knowledgeable leaders, they bring stability. You know why when you talk like this, it's so silent? First service is just like this too. Because we've somehow gotten absent of truth, and it makes us uncomfortable to say that there's only one way. And the Bible warns that there's a day coming when there is such confusion that men will be in utter chaos and confusion of what is true. I think we've arrived at that day. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who confuse bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So I look around and I watch all these pastors, some I went to school with, some I've worked with for a long time, some who hold the same denominational credentials that I hold, who've been raised to believe that God is holy and calls us to be holy, that he doesn't, he doesn't leave us in our sin but changes us, transforms us, and gives us power to be different, that I might sin but my intent is not to, and I don't have to do it every day, and I can walk in his holiness. And so I look around and I watch these, these pastors start to, in droves, give in to public opinion which has changed. If political reigns have changed and, and transformed and been different and transferred, if it's for the foreseeable future, they have decided it's easier to go with the flow, whichever side you're on, and align themselves not necessarily with traditional Christianity in the past, nor the Word. You say, well, who, who, somebody asked me, who should we vote for? I can tell you this now that we're semi-done with all these elections and stuff. You're never going to hear me tell you who to vote for. Politicians make you look so stupid. I can do that on my own, you know? <laughs> but I do know that if I go to the Word, the Word spells out some things very clearly. And the, the farther along we push and go, and the farther along that well, we, we dig into the Word, the clearer it becomes. I see pastor friends of mine, which I cannot explain, defend taking the unborn life, which they would rather call a fetus and say it's okay. But my Bible says, Jeremiah 1 verse 5, before I formed you in the, the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I see Christian people jumping too quickly on the border discussion with strong opinion. This is what we should do, but way too slow to jump on the care for orphans and widows bandwagon. James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that our God accepts as pure and faultless to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself polluted from being polluted from the world. 
I see pastors who are giving in that, that marriage, the marriage bed is not just for one man or one woman anymore. Hebrews chapter 13, verse, verse 4, my Bible says, Let marriage be held in honor amongst all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I see pastors shifting that marriage is not just between two people and God anymore, as if that's some antiquated idea. But 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2 says this, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so I see pastors approving or silently surrendering to the idea that there are 49 ways to identify or refer to more than 100 genders and identities that the BBC has put out for children to consume in video format. And we've confused sexuality so much that it's not only sexual orientation, but romantic orientation as completely two different things that we have to decide. Yet the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And so there's right and wrong, and it's defined by my conscience, people want to say. But I pull the Bible out, and the Bible says the ultimate standard is Jesus Christ. The ultimate standard. So Jesus tells Pontius Pilate, he says, whoever's on the side of truth, he listens to me. Paul tells the Athenians that God would judge the world with justice by man he has appointed. He has given everyone the ability to see Jesus has raised from the dead. Jesus gives us eternal standard. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's the same yesterday today and forever. And when we take our morals and our values from the Bible and from Christ, we don't change with shifting shadows. He is not an imaginary friend who can conveniently be manufactured to accommodate personal preferences. He is literal, historical. He's the Jesus clearly revealed in the scriptures, and it's not very popular to preach like this anymore. <laughs> if if, if, I, if I want to take the easy route and I want to take the comfortable route, then I'll, I'll skirt these kind of truths and I'll skirt these kind of uh, topics and I'll stay away from uh, what offends some people. Um, but when I look to my Bible, all I can do is say, this is what I see. Help me not to see what the Lord is saying and I'll change my mind. But at this point, this is what I see. And we could fill a church up very, very quickly if we give a little bit on some of these harder truths. But we'd also give we give some of the DNA and the soul of our church to the, to the spirit of the enemy. And I won't do that for another person to sit in a seat or another dollar. I just won't. If Steve Harvey wants to come out and say that there is more than one way to Jesus, then he can say that, but he's dead wrong. Dead wrong. He'll figure that out one day. There was a nurse, national survey done by George Barna. Uh, George Barna um, decided to ask how many people believe there is absolute truth. In other words, there's always a standard and there's always a truth set. And, and does circumstances change that? So the question was, do you believe that there are moral absolutes that are unchanging? And those moral truths, are they relative to your circumstances? So can they change with circumstances? This is what he found. 58% of, believe, of adults believe that truth is always relative to the person or their situation. In other words, it changes depending on, um, on uh, their situation. It, it changes, right? Uh, six out of ten adults believe that. Forty-two percent answered that the basis of truth was God. But four out of ten of the 60 percent said truth comes from inner certainty, scientific truth, tradition, or public consensus. Can you imagine that? Taking your morals from inner certainty, you change from morning to night. 
You are, you are different in the pandemic than outside the pandemic. Scientific proof, well, I believe in science. I actually think God proves himself through science. I really do believe that. I think it's a lie that science or God are opposed to one another, right? Like he, he can prove himself through science, and I think science speaks to the Lord. But I often wonder, how do we know when it's scientific anymore? I mean, I thought, I mean, honestly, I followed protocols as much as I can. Is it 14 days to flatten the curve? Is it, is it more than 14 days? Is it one mask? Is it three masks? Is it a whole bodysuit? Is it, should I stay, should I send my kids upstairs and never let them come downstairs until the pandemic is over? Amen? Amen? Don't buy the lie that God and, tradition, God and science are opposed to one another. If it's tradition and the way I've been raised, that might not be the way God wants me to live. Think about this. Teenagers were asked, this is pretty scary, 83% responded that moral truth depends on the circumstance. In other words, depending on what the circumstance is, depending on whether something is actually true or not, 6% indicated that there was moral truth. This study was done 21 years ago. So it hadn't gotten any better. This is why I think it's very important for those of you that are online, those of you in the lobby, and those of you that are in the church to, to be able to know that it's more important than ever to stick to a Bible-believing, Holy Spirit-filled, Jesus-loving church. Because what, while the church is not perfect, there have been, there's a season in my life where I thought I was going to walk away from the ministry, and I probably potentially, not for a praying wife and a praying uh, parent, parents, would have walked away from the church altogether. I was very bitter. Church is not perfect. But what's coming? Way worse than a little bit of church hurt. But I'm telling you, you've got to connect to the body of Christ while you have time and when you have this ability to be stronger and more resilient. And it's hard to believe that our culture has given up, that there's no real clear understanding of truth. Today we'll baptize people and we'll, we'll, they'll say, I believe, I've been saved, I've been baptized, I'm born again, and this is my public expression of what has happened inside of me. And we'll go nuts and we'll go crazy and we'll celebrate them, but it is for sure, and they are clear and we are clear that it is in the name of Jesus Christ and him alone. That baptism does not save you, that he saves you, and this is how you express that to the world. I'm going to tell you, you know, some people have gotten really discouraged in this season. Like, it seems discouraging. Like, wait, now how are you going to get yourself out of this sermon into baptisms? Can they, you know, get in. But the, Bible, but the Bible is clear that we should not lose hope. Like, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not hopeless right now. I don't think to myself, oh, less people think of the, less people want to look to the Bible, less people look to Jesus. Uh, our, our teenagers are, are less, you know, Christian than they've ever been. They don't even believe in truth anymore. They don't, they're, they're just running amok and going crazy, and, we, and it's under our watch, so it's, it's somewhat of our fault. And it's like, huh. when I think to myself, potentially God is getting ready to have a revival of his country. In this country, there is an an opportunity for people to see the error of their ways and turn and repent, both in this country and around the world. And so he's moving, and the, the question is, will, we, will be, we be sacrificial enough and out there enough and strong enough in the truth to gather those and be different than the culture, or will we just hand them more of the culture with a little bit of Jesus? 
Now, here's why I tell you I'm not discouraged. The fourth gate is this one, real quickly. The valley gate. The valley gate was, as we go counterclockwise, was, was, um, was, was there because the Jerusalem, the area it was on, was surrounded by three valleys, right? And so, uh, verse 13 tells us this. The gate was repaired by residents. They built it, put its doors and bolts and bars in place, and they re- repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Now, who's excited about next week? <laughs> yeah. Where we will get to the bottom of things. Yes. So the valley gate is described because there was these valleys that surround it. When the, the scriptures talk about valleys, it always describes that the valley is a low point in life and that the mountaintop is a high point. They're, they're opposed uh, one another, but you go through highs and you go through lows. Like life, spiritually go through that. And, um, and yet the Bible describes that when you're in, on the high place, to be careful to not fall because of your pride. But when you're in the low place, know that the Lord is still with you. So there are a bunch of people that are watching at home today, and I think to myself, you probably feel so disconnected, but God walks right with you as you connect with us. And God walks with us. And he reminds us that he is good despite, you think about the fact that there is a, a global pandemic which has taken more people um, than that we would ever care to, to want to have lost, right? I mean, it's, just, it's just so mind-numbing, and yet God walks right with us. He walks right with us. And, and he says something like this. Psalms 23 says this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I'm like, the last week I had the privilege. I should have brought a picture, but I had the privilege of doing a funeral for a veteran in our church. And he served in the Air Force. And so his, uh, his funeral service was at uh, Johnson Seymour, uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. Um, his name is Jack Haniak. And, um, and so... Um, when, you, when you go there, they want you to be fast and quick. Pastor, you've got to hurry up. we only got 20 minutes in the pandemic. There are going to be a few people, and you've got to, you know, all this stuff. So I'm, so I'm standing back, and they're honoring him, and his casket's laid there, and the flag's laid over his casket, and his wife is, is taking in him being honored, and we're all taking it in too, like, so moving, man. So moving that we have the freedoms we have because of men like Jack who sacrifice for years and years of his young life to serve our country. And it, you, listen to, you listen to the, to the, to the honoring of that, and you just can't help be moved. And then it, right, over, right over where we were at, because it's the Air Force Base, they fly honors over those being buried that day. So three jets come up. And it was so loud, you, you just had to stop. There was nothing we could do. It was so loud. It was just deafening in this little cove that we were in. And I'm standing there by a wife who's honoring her husband, um, laying here, uh, being uh, laid to rest. But, but I think to myself, Lord, you are with us on the mountaintops and the valley. And so all the jets go over and open this passage. I says, Susan, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for God is with you. But God is with you. He comforts you. He supports you. There are two things we know when we go through a valley. Uh, one is that valleys are where the battles are fought and won. That's where, that's where it's fought and won. You say, I'm in this season of life where I'm in a valley. 
Well, that's where the battle's won. So you get your mind right, right? Get yourself in the scriptures. Get yourself around people who are wise, ask their wisdom, and then seek the Lord on that and win that battle that is fighting you. And two, you know that the valleys are where things grow. So maybe God is using this season to grow your faith, to renew you, to crunch in you the things that he doesn't want and remove those and replace it with his spirit. And you just hand that to the Lord and say, God, you're more resilient than I am. Galatians chapter 6 says, don't become weary in doing good. For the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It blows my mind when people get older or, or, and they've given the, the many years to the church and the gospel and to the king, and then they just kind of get tired. Man, it's not any time to get tired, I'm going to tell you right now. And until Jesus comes back, we're going to put our hand to the plow, we're going to reach people for his kingdom, and we're going to baptize them in his name, and we're going to walk with them to become disciples of Christ until they can start discipling other people. Then we're going to reach them, and we're going to teach them, and then we're going to send them out. So maybe today you're on a mountaintop. You say, man, this is an amazing day. This is an amazing season of life. Well, don't get too humble. Maybe reach down and help somebody through the valley. Maybe you're in the valley today, and you are reminded that the Lord is with you, he walks with you, and there's a body of believers who loves you that literally we don't take our cues from a broken world. We exist to amplify the beauty of Jesus into that world. So today we're going to baptize some people. And the band's going to come and they're going to play at the end here and, and um, we're going to sing and close out. Um, but I'm going to ask the people who are getting baptized, I want to see your faces for a second. So Wyatt, Kenna, come on. April, Valda, you're going to make me all call you by name, aren't you? Let me see you right here. Come on. Don't they look good? I'd, I'd rather see the other side. <laughs> see, that's the only one that lives at my house. <laughs> Thank you. Get up. Kenna, turn around and say, let me see you. All right, all right. <laughs> you have to live me for a long time to get my humor, don't you? So today you're going to get baptized. And you're going you're to go under the water and you're going to come back up. The water does not save you. Jesus does. The water is a symbol of being washed clean, dead to life, raised again in Christ. Okay, like we talked about. On top of that, you've got all these people in all the first service who's watching online who wanted to see your baptism but were disappointed with second service, right, who are behind you. So um, I'm going to give you a chance for just a moment to go get ready, but I want to tell you that um, this is a huge moment, and we're super proud of you. Like, this is why we do church. So we love you. I want you to look around at all the people for just a second. Look at them. These people are behind you. It's real nerve-wracking. You get real nervous, right? You get real nervous, but yet all these people are so excited for your journey today. So I'm going to let you guys uh, make your way over to the baptistry pool, and Miss Cindy will help you over, over there. So you guys head that way. Now, here's the deal. I'm dead serious that the Super Bowl's got nothing on us, right? So... They go down, they come up, right? And, um, and we're going to celebrate because this, uh, this is 
both honoring um, to the Lord and an act of obedience. The Bible says when you get saved, then your next step is to um, go public with your faith. And so that's what uh, these people are doing today. My name is Wyatt. Jesus is Lord of my life, and I want others to know that, and that's why I'm getting baptized today. My favorite Bible verse is Romans 8.31. It says, if God be for us, who can be against us? have a church here? Looks like I was right. your faith in Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey, my name is April, and I'm getting baptized today. Um, I can fully say for the last um, couple years I've had a rough um, time with battling with God and um, for the last year I really put my full life in God and so at this point in my life I feel like this can just wipe my slate clean and I can full force with God and keep moving forward. Um, my favorite Bible verse is Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous, not be frightened and not dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. April, we're proud of you, and we love you, and you're an inspiration to so many people, and we've told you that over and over, and um, I know your little kids are watching Jesus in you, and so we celebrate today with you. Because of your faith in Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
good job. All right, go ahead and have a seat. <laughs> All right, grab your wrist, grab your wrist. There you go. Kenna, because you're facing Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> you all right? You okay? You okay? Good job. You okay? Good job. Good job. Good job. Hey, grab her hand. Good job. Good job. Good job, Kenny. You did great. You did fantastic. My name is Valerie Perkins, and I am getting baptized today. God has been working on me for quite some time now, and I'm ready to devote my life to him. One of my favorite Bible verses is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Well, Valerie, we're super proud of you. And we've loved walking beside you, and we're thankful for what Jesus is doing in your life. So today, in front of friends and family, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he brought me and know oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I He has ransomed me, His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, He died for me. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free.
like forgiven and victorious and chosen and not forsaken. And when he gives us those names, we can stand confidently in them. So we sing this out today and we proclaim it that we know that when he says we are chosen, when we when he says that we are his, we believe it and we are confident in him. Let's sing this together. love you today. We're thankful for you as your people. We're thankful for those who celebrate in the waters of baptism. And we think of our own journey, God, that you have saved us, that you have, have walked with us, and that you are with us until the end. So, Father, we're trusting you, whether it's a mountaintop or a valley, we're, we're trusting you and we're putting our faith in you. We're all in. We're holding on. And I pray today, Lord, that you would go with these who have heard these words and seen these acts of faith today. May they be strengthened in their faith. And may they be light to a dark world. God, may they amplify the beauty of Jesus even today. It's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. We love you.